You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. And finally, before we welcome Dr. Pennington to the stage, please join me in today's scripture reading from Romans 13 and John 18. And if you're able, please stand. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, in 1951, the Yale theologian Helmut Richard Niebuhr published a book that became very famous and influential, and it was entitled Christ and Culture. And here, 70 years later, people are still talking about interacting with that book quite a bit. And Christ and Culture is one of those books that provides clarity to a very complex issue. Because it gives us a a taxonomy, a, a memorable organizational scheme to help us think through a really difficult question. What is the issue that Niebuhr is addressing? It's found right there in his title. And the question is, how does Christ relate to culture? That is, how does Christianity and the church relate to the societies it finds itself in both culturally and politically? And that is a massively important question that you may or may not have thought much about. But sooner or later, all Christians have to think about this question, especially when there is tension between church and culture. For example, back in the first century, when many, many, pers- when many Christians were persecuted under the horrible Emperor Nero, how should Christians respond to that? Should they just roll over? Should they fight back? Should they try to take legal action? Should they form a Christian army? Should they go into hiding? Should they maybe pull back a little bit from their Christian witness? What would you do? Or you think about the churches underground during the Cold War. When I was a college student in the early 90s, I was able to be in Czechoslovakia right after the Cold War was closing up and, and to see all these Christians who had secretly met uh, during that time and continued to meet as Christians. Or how about today in many places, in China or Russia or other places where there may be limits on Christians meeting? Or you think about the, the split in the 1850s and beyond between the northern and the southern denominations over the issue of slavery. It was a big cultural issue that they had to wrestle with. Or you think of the Women's Temperance Christian Union who worked so in such a way with culture that they actually got a, an amendment to the Constitution passed of prohibition. Or what about boycotting Disney? Or should you boycott Netflix? Or maybe what about SeaWorld? Should that be boycotted? 
What about when missions agencies go into other cultures and discover things that seem very odd or maybe not helpful, like Chinese foot binding or Burmese shrines to family ancestors? Or what about just right now in a very tense election year? Well, Christians have wrestled with this question for 2,000 years. How in the world are we supposed to relate to the culture around us? And Niebuhr's taxonomy helps lay out some big categories of the way Christians over time have responded. One view is what he calls Christ against culture. And under this view, loyalty to Christ requires a rejection of culture, a rejection of society, often a disengagement with political structures. And there's a really sharp line in this kind of way of thinking between church and culture. And one form, you might have groups like Mennonites who kind of form separate communities, or it might be more kind of 20th century fundamentalism. And I know some of you grew up in that kind of church where the main stance of Christianity was against culture. But Niebuhr also points out the opposite way some people do it, that he calls Christ of culture. And this is especially true of a large swath of Protestant liberalism, especially starting in the late 1800s and in Europe and America, where Christianity really just becomes part of what it means to be part of the cultural elite. And and Jesus is, is presented as a very progressive, kind, societal peace kind of figure who just affirms all that they do. But the dominant view, Niebuhr points out, for most Christians throughout time is what he calls Christ above culture. And this gets worked out for different Christians in different ways. But the idea is that God is sovereign over everything in the world. And so Christians live in this paradoxical relationship of being both in the world, but not of it. Here's the question. What does the Bible say about this issue of Christ and culture? Well, the answer that the Bible gives is very wise and very nuanced. And for our scripture this morning, I had Lindsay read from a a few verses from Romans 13 and from John 18, because those actually do emphasize slightly different sides of the issue, the importance of government on the one side, and also the recognition that no government really has authority over Christ and his church. We could go to the book of Revelation, and we see that in, in that book, the government of Rome is called an evil beast and satanic that is set against the world. And we can also see other texts that encourage us to submit to governments. We can also see places where, for example, the apostles in the book of Acts are commanded no longer to preach, and they say, we're not going to do it. So the Bible never contradicts itself, but quite the opposite. It constantly shows us itself to be very thoughtful and nuanced and aware of the complexities of the issue. Now, I'm raising this issue this morning not because of some current political situation, not because of some particular social issue, but because of the wonderful text that is providentially before us today as we continue our preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, we have come to Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. It's a short story. It's a very short story that is infinitely more important than its short length would lead us to believe. If you want to think of our, the weight of our story in terms of the periodic table, if you've got a sophomore like I do who's in chemistry right now, you've got the periodic table on your minds. And, and what Jesus says in Matthew 22, 15 to 22 is uranium level heavy, atomic mass, 92, and it turns out to be just as radioactive. And throughout the church's 2,000 years history, Jesus' teaching here in our text this morning has been the single most influential text as Christians have tried to wrestle with this massively complex issue of how do we relate 
to culture and governments around us. So let's turn there. If you have a Bible, love to invite you to turn to Matthew 22. If not, we'll put it on the screen. And let's look at this story together. It starts in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity. We know that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Okay, there's a, there's a lot in these verses already. And, and as always, you know, we're kind of jumping in the middle. So it's helpful to get a little run up, a little context here. We are jumping into the middle of a very intense scene. It's a conflict, a conflict that's going on in Jerusalem between Jesus and the religious and civil leaders. Jesus, just a couple chapters before, has come into the holy city. People are yelling and singing and proclaiming that he is the God-sent king who is going to rescue them, the promised Messiah. And that is, understandably, very upsetting to the religious and political establishment. And then Jesus adds fuel to the fire by causing a major disruption in the temple, playing the role of a prophet sent by God. And so they come and challenge him on this, and he responds by telling three parables we've seen over the last couple of weeks, three parables of judgment that are directly against them, and they realize it. So this is not a pleasant Sunday afternoon in the park. This is a near-riot, high-tension moment. And so now the religious and civil leaders decide that the only thing they can do to get rid of this guy is to outwit him, to publicly shame this untrained hick from the north and show the whole crowd that he is just a pretender, he's an upstart, and they're the real ones who know. And so they are mad, they are frustrated, and their emotional and religious world is being rocked by this uneducated wannabe prophet. So they gather together, apart from the crowd, and they make plans to trap him, to get him to say something that they can use against him and shame him in front of the whole crowd. It's, it's really quite sad and pathetic that there have always been and there are still people like this. If the Pharisees would have had iPhones, I'm sure they would have taken a bunch of clips of Jesus, take them out of context, splice them together, add some commentary that misrepresents what Jesus says, and then they have a big graphic stamp that comes across liberal or something, and then they'd upload it to their YouTube channel, Pharisees for Truth, First Century Discernment Ministry. It's really dark and sad. Now, this isn't the first time the Pharisees have done this. Way back in Matthew chapter 12, they already decided that they hated Jesus and they were going to get him. They called him demonic, satanic. And they set way back in chapter 12 a motion in plan to kill him. And the opposite of what Jesus taught, love and mercy, their lives are filled with murderous thoughts. And so now here in Jerusalem, they're finally bringing their plan to fruition. And do you see the, the syrupy, deceptive hypocrisy of the words? They hate him. Matthew's already made it clear. They hate him. They don't respect him. They don't think he's a rabbi. All they want to do is to shut him up and get rid of him. So again, when they say to him, look at those verses again, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity and, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who, who they are. The irony is those things are absolutely true of Jesus, but they mean them in the most hypocritical and syrupy way. So they're trying, because they're trying to entrap him, it says. They're trying to entrap him with three questions. And here again is the first question they ask. Look at it again in verse 17. Tell us, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? 
This seems like a pretty benign question. I mean, they don't ask him, can you explain to us the problem of evil? Or what do you think about social justice or abortion or anything like that? No, they ask him about taxes. However, this question in their day is much more than about paying income tax or whether social security is a good plan or whatever it is. This is the perfect question to trap Jesus, to discredit his ministry and get him in trouble. Why? Because back in AD 6, so 25 or so years before this, when the Romans took over control of all of this area, one of the very first things they did was to levy a poll tax, a a census-based tax where every adult, male and female and slave Jewish person was census, they were measured and then taxed per person. And this was infuriating to the Jewish people. I mean, they were already subjugated by these pagan, godless reprobates, and now they're being forced like cattle to be counted and taxed per person. This is on top of all the other taxes they already have of traveling and trading and how many fish you catch and all these things. It'd be like if if China or Russia or Iran or somebody took over America, controlled all of our movements, put limits on our religion, and then said we all had to be counted so that we could have this extra tax on top of us. We would be infuriated. And so what happened back in AD 6 is that there was a guy named Judas or Judah from Galilee, same place Jesus is from, and he started a guerrilla warfare rebellion because of this tax. So he gathered other Jews around him and they would attack Roman caravans and they would attack other Jews who they thought were sellouts. And the Roman, the mighty Roman empire comes down, kills him and all of his followers but you can never really kill such an ideological rebellion. So what happens is many of the people that agreed with Judas, that became the seedbed of a group we called the Zealots, who eventually, during the, over the course of several decades, eventually in AD 66, so some years later, they mount a full-scale rebellion against the Romans that lasts for four years, only ending in AD 70 when finally the Romans destroy the temple in Jerusalem completely. So the point is, this is right in the middle of this very intense time where the issue of the tax is a major sticking point. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, people who are connected to the Herod family, know exactly what they're doing when they ask Jesus publicly about this tax. I mean, it's perfect. They've got him trapped. Because if Jesus says that the Jews should pay the imperial tax to Caesar, then he shows himself to be a sellout. I mean, most of the crowd would probably be hugely disappointed, hugely disillusioned. He's supposed to be the King Messiah, the one sent by God to restore the kingdom. He just did this amazingly violent thing in the temple and they're thinking, this is it. This is what he's been preaching. This is the time. We're not gonna submit to the Romans. And yet, if he says that they should, they'd be disappointed. This would be like if you found out that a a Christian pastor you respected was actually sending money to support ISIS or that the Secretary of Defense was sending plans of biological warfare to another country. They would be hugely disillusioned with them. But on the other hand, if Jesus says that they shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then they've got him too because they'll run right to Pilate and rat him out because this would be the perfect opportunity 
for them to finally stop this disruptive teacher and all his followers because they'll have the Romans arrest him and crucify him. And there's a sense in which that's what finally happens, right? The, the placard that's put above Jesus' head, the charge against him when he's crucified is king of the Jews. That's the only thing they can get to stick against him. So they have Jesus between the daggers of the zealots on one side and the spears of the centurions on the other. So what's he going to say? We'll look at verse 18. <clears throat> but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Now, that's not the normal way Jesus responds to people. He never responds to sincere, humble, broken seekers this way. But to these people who have set themselves against them, who have called him demonic and are seeking to destroy him and entrap him, these are appropriate words. They call out what is true about them in their evil ways the fit, what Jesus calls regularly hypocrisy and, and insincerity, a lack of wholeheartedness. They have the appearance of good, but their hearts are far from God. Now, he could have just stopped there and he could have said, you know, manuscript drop, I'm done. I don't have to answer you. But in this case, Jesus does give them an answer. And what he says proves again to be one of the most important teachings of Jesus over the next 2,000 years. Because what he says here speaks so beautifully and so powerfully into this great question of how in the world we relate to culture. Let's look at it in verse 19. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Now, it's very interesting, something deeply ironic going on here because, as you may know, God forbid the Jewish people from making any graven images. And so as a result, any pictures, especially of people. So as a result, the Jewish people never used these coins and they were so ornery about it that the Romans let them use non-standard coins, other kinds of coins that didn't have a picture on them normally. Because do you know what this picture that this denarius that had Caesar's picture on it had? We know, we have lots of these. It had two, two phrases on it. One said, Divi Filius, son of God. And the other one said, Pontifex Maximus, chief priest. <laughs> so th- this This image, this coin, is from the Jewish perspective, a portable idol. And so they never had these coins because it it would defile them. Yet the irony you're supposed to feel in this story is that when they come to and challenge him and he says, show me a coin, they actually have one. And they show him and they say, whose inscription is it? And he asks them a simple question and they give the right answer, Caesar's. And then... Here is the response that has resonated and reverberated throughout the world for 2,000 years. He said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. (laughs) Instead of being trapped into answering one way or the other, because as they think they've got him, like the first son of David, Solomon, like wise Solomon or any great sage or philosopher, Jesus reframes the whole trap into a beautiful teaching that was completely unexpected. And what does he say by saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? Well, notice that this brilliant answer simultaneously affirms and limits the role of government. And this is why it's such an important thing. It simultaneously affirms and limits the role of government. First, Jesus affirms and shows respect for the state because he says in the providence of God, 
all authorities are in a real sense under God's authority, whether it's a king or an emperor or a communist dictator or an immoral and godless leader, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat or a libertarian or if Kanye West would have been elected, whoever it was, all authorities are under God's sovereignty. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all equally good. It doesn't mean that they are all moral or equally wise or preferable. And I'd rather live in the United States than anywhere else in the world, no matter who's in the White House. But the point is that God controls the whole world sovereignly, and he even, in a mysterious way, allows evil people to do bad things, even evil governments. And that's exactly what he said in Romans 13. Let me read this text for you again. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. That's why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. You see, Jesus' answer affirms and shows respect for the state because governments do much good. They organize things for their citizens, water, sewage, highways, justice systems, police, military, buildings, food quality codes. I'm glad when I went out to eat last night that there's a health department that makes me have some confidence that when I order something that there's some food quality testing or that there's going to be enough fire exits if there's the thing. Those are the good kind of things the government does. And that speaks against a Christ against culture idea, the mindset that many Christians have adopted, or at least they adopt that depending on whether they like who's in the White House or not. A lot of Christians adopt instead this Christ against culture mindset, but they misunderstand that Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And a lot of times, if you adopt a Christian, a Christ against culture mindset, you might hear those words render unto Caesar negatively, like render unto Caesar, you jerk. But it's important to understand that in the history of the church, this, these words were primarily interpreted positively, not negatively, as, a form, as affirming the importance of rendering to Caesar the things that are in his God-given realm. Jesus affirms that there is a realm of Caesars that should be respected and listen to. And note, this is what so strikes me about studying this text this week, is that Jesus is saying this into a culture that is horribly worse than what anything we've ever experienced. In the Roman Empire, there were no election of officials. It was a completely foreign language. It was a system of government that was religiously and civilly subjugating the people with heavy taxation, limits on activities. This is far cry from anything that we've experienced. And it really challenges me and challenge, should challenge you if your posture towards the government and other people in society is negative because of who won the election either way, Jesus affirms that there is a God-given sub-sovereignty even over the most pagan, ungodly, Gentile Caesars in the world. How is he not in control of all other governments? And yet we are to respect And at the same time, Jesus not only shows respect for the realm of Caesar, but he also ultimately limits the power and sovereignty of any government. You see, the Bible emphasizes God's sovereignty over all governments and cultures, and it's not afraid to call out and critique evil, 
even again calling the Roman Empire in the Bible evil and satanic. The same Roman Empire that Jesus and Paul affirm as being controlled by God is also defined as satanic in the book of Revelation while still affirming that God's in control of it. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate in John 18 that we also had read, that God could come in at any time and do whatever he wants, and he often does. And here's the key. Because all human governments are under God's ultimate control, then they are ultimately limited in power. Because God is sovereign over all of them, they are limited by nature because he is in control. And they're also limited in the sphere of what they control. So Christians pay taxes, they're quiet, they're respectful in society. But when Christians were forced to bow down and worship the emperor, they refused. And they often died for this. Because any government's power ends when it encroaches on the Christian's obedience to God. Think again of Christians being forbidden to worship or to gather or to preach. Jesus' brilliant answer while using the Caesar coin is particularly powerful when you recognize the subtle play that's going on here. Again, Caesar's coin is stamped with his image and therefore belongs to his realm. But humans, humans are stamped with God's image. That's how the Bible talks, that we are in God's image and therefore belong to God. So when Jesus says to give back to Caesar what is his, he's saying that any obedience we offer to the state or any way that we choose to get along with culture, even when we disagree with it, is acknowledging rightly that realm of reality symbolized by our money. But our ultimate identity, our ultimate allegiance is to the one who has stamped his own image on us. Now, of course, how exactly to work that out has been the dilemma for the last 2,000 years. When, what is the realm, and what area, and what situation results to what realm? There are plenty of clear times, I think, when Christians have disobeyed governments and disagreed with culture, whether it's Corey Ten Boom or others hiding Jewish people from the Nazis, whether it's people in, in places where they're not allowed to worship in communist countries, meeting in house churches underground, whether again it's the apostles continuing to preach after Jesus' resurrection when they were forbidden not to, whether it's Martin Luther standing before the Pope and refusing to stop preaching the gospel. And in a pluralistic republic like ours, it also means voting to elect people you think will bring the greatest good. Those are all ways that Christians can be emboldened. But there are a thousand situations where it is so much more difficult to decide on what, what is Caesar's and what is God's. And please hear me, it's okay for Christians to kindly disagree with those issues as well. We are to follow our conscience and we shouldn't turn that into an opportunity to attack each other. The key is for Christians to find the balance between respecting the world while also recognizing its limits. And I think this is best summed up with those wise words of the Apostle Peter many years later when he was reflecting on Jesus' teachings and he wrote these words. I think he's thinking about Matthew 22 when he writes this. He, Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And here's the key. Live as free people, 
but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. (laughs) That is so wise, so balanced, so beautiful that we are actually free. He says, we are free in the world, but we're not free because we're slaves of God. This is not a Christ against culture or a Christ in culture view, but a Christ above culture. We are being told to seek to live good lives, to actually live good lives. And by doing so, we will help people move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we live good lives by preaching the gospel. And we live good lives by building beautiful things into culture, like art, and hospitals, and organizations, and chicken restaurants, and coffee shops, and anti-sex trafficking organizations, by being great coaches, and university professors, and researchers, and garbage collectors, and even government officials. This is living a good life in the eyes of society, not against it, not snooty towards it, not arms crossed against it, but standing above as God's slaves and living in freedom. It's possible In fact, it's Christ's way to be both supportive of the world we live in and be loyal to God. That is the narrow way of wisdom that Jesus is calling us to. And to help you conceptualize this and maybe give you a hook to hang on on this this week in your mind, I want you to think, I want to introduce to your hearts and minds an important concept from psychology and therapy and counseling about how humans function in a healthy way in relationships. I think is, we can apply it to this. It's the difference between what's called enmeshed, differentiated and engaged, or disconnected. Enmeshed, differentiated and engaged, and disconnected. Enmeshed, what does that mean? It means that some people live their relationships with others in ways that overly identify with the other person. They kind of lose their self into the other person and and often into their pathologies. It's an unhealthy way. Many of you have learned to make it through life with this as your mode. From some hurts or something that happened, you you learn that the way you can kind of make it through and and not lose your mind is to, to kind of overly enmesh in friendships and in marriage and in parenting with your children. But this is destructive. It's not healthy to be overly enmeshed with other people. On the other side is what's called disconnected, the opposite of being enmeshed, where maybe you show up in relationships with your arms crossed relationally and emotionally and disconnected from people. You got thick masks and walls and nobody really knows what's going on. And that's another way of responding that we all learn to respond to deep hurts from our childhood and beyond. And sometimes we'll show up in one way in one set of relationships and another enmeshed and disconnected. And sometimes we might vacillate back between before we might get super enmeshed and then we feel so frustrated with ourselves or we see the damage of it that we, we flee and become disconnected. But none of that is healthy. The healthy way of being in a relationship is what we call differentiated and engaged. A, a healthy, centered, boundaried self who does still care and loves and has deep relationships, but does out of a place of health. There's more that we could say about that scheme, which is very helpful to think about our personal relational lives, but I wanna use that as a vision to help us think today about our Christian relationship to culture and government. On the one hand, we can be enmeshed. 
We can be overly identified with culture and government, and I mean on either side. <laughs> Whether you are a Democrat or Republican or whatever you are, it's very easy to be overly enmeshed with yourself, with that sort of view of society. A Christ of culture, whether it's super conservative or super liberal, either way is the same thing. On the other hand, you can be very disconnected. A Christ against culture, where your attitude towards society and everything is aloof and disengaged and negative, and again, arms crossed posture. Christ against culture. But I'd suggest to you the way, the way of wisdom, Jesus' way of wisdom is this differentiated and engaged where you, you stay centered in the reality that this world is not the kingdom to which I owe my ultimate allegiance and that, and that I am free from this world but a slave to God and his kingdom. But I'm still engaged. I seek to do good. I seek to live a good life because I know God is sovereign and powerful and good. And I'm not just talking here, friends, about our heads, just our thinking this morning, but I want you to pay attention to your bodies and your emotions. Because if you pay attention to what you are feeling when some tension comes up, masks, no masks, who won the election, whatever it is, if you pay attention to your emotions and your body as you think about your current future in society, if you are physically and emotionally troubled in a way that is controlling you, on either side of the political spectrum, on any kind of issue, if you're aware that you are deeply emotionally and physically troubled by these social issues, then you're probably enmeshed with culture rather than differentiated from it. Doesn't mean you don't care. Doesn't mean you shouldn't care. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be engaged. Doesn't mean you shouldn't work for good. But pay attention to your body and your emotions because those are, those are witnesses to you to where, where your heart is. And if you find yourself overly agitated, and especially it's spilling out in your relationships of conflict with other people in the church or outside the church, then I would just humbly say to you, friend, you're probably overly identified with culture that is not God's kingdom on either side of the issue. Because you see, we don't have to be afraid because what's underneath that agitation is fear. We can approach culture and society with arms stretched wide, the posture in which Jesus himself died, who loved the world in such a way that he was willing to be misunderstood and mocked and killed and did not show up in life with anxiety. So this week, if you find yourself anxious and that spilling out towards others, I'm gonna exhort you to remember Jesus' own posture toward the world. Because the church can and should be the one place in the world, of all the institutions, of all the things in the world, the church can and should be the one place with wise, emotionally stable, kind, loving, non-anxious people because we know God is good and sovereign and we are free. Our relationship with society is one of freedom. We don't have to attack. We don't have to be afraid because we are slaves of a different kingdom that is sovereign over all. And back in February, which seems like a lifetime ago, <laughs> February, back in February from this pulpit, I preached a sermon about Matthew 13 and I talked about a wonderful vision of how Christians can relate to the world around us. And many of you, we're impacted by that, I know, because many of you talked to me about it, and I just want to bring it back up here because I think it's really helpful. And it's the idea of patient 
ferment. And I get this delightful phrase from a scholar, Alan Kreider, his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And Kreider asks this crucial question. How in the world did this tiny Jewish-based sect of Christianity not only survive the mighty and oppressive Roman Empire, but go on to thrive in it and to transform it and eventually to take over the empire and impact 2,000 years of history? How did that happen? His answer is brilliant and beautiful. That a big part of the reason why Christianity was able to influence and transform culture over time is because within the church, they cultivated a culture of patience, of patient ferment. Through inviting people into the church, through inviting people into the life of teaching and worship, to inviting people into habits of service to society, helping the poor, starting hospitals, taking good care of women, children, and widows, sharing wealth with each other, nonviolent ethics. By doing those things, the church created a yeasty, fermenting culture that over time spread even more than friendship bread and more than a mustard seed that becomes a tree. It is through this fearless centeredness in the kingdom of God that we can live with patience in relationship to our society. It's actually one more verse in our story. And that just tells us after Jesus said this, how did they respond? Look at verse 22. When they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. It is an amazing answer. And if you are not a Christian today, maybe you've been coming along for a while, maybe it's your first Sunday here, we are so thrilled you're here. Maybe you're still just trying to figure stuff out. I just wanna tell you, we are gathered here because we believe Jesus is so wise, so beautiful, that he, and that he gives us life-giving direction that is very practical about how to conduct our lives. And we also believe that he is so much more than that, that this wise one is also the king of the world who died to forgive us our sins and he established a beachhead of his kingdom through the church in the world. And now we are seeking arm in arm to live in that way and we invite you to be part of that. If you are a Christian today, I just wanna invite you again anew to be amazed at Jesus's wisdom and his beauty. Jesus is the suffering servant we know who humbly procured our forgiveness through his own sacrificial death, but he's not only that. It's not only his death that matters, his life matters too. The wisdom of God incarnate teaching us, modeling for us how to live and how to think. Don't let your familiarity with the Bible today numb you to the beauty of Jesus. Every time I read this story, I'm blown away. They had him trapped. They had him. And he gives this perfect answer that shows that he is not like us, that he is the wise one of God, worthy of all of our allegiance and joy and love. And in fact, I suggest to you, friends, that today, the more clearly we see Jesus and are amazed by him, the less anxious we will be about our culture and our place in it. The more enamored we are and when we see him clearly, that frees us to not live in anxiety 
in relationship to whatever's going on in society because we know who he is, his wisdom and his kingship and his glory. Our hearts are always drawn to the most beautiful object we can see. And the more we recognize Jesus as amazing, the less enamored we will be with this world and our attempts to control it. So we love to end each service with this great moment of King Jesus that just shortly after this teaching, just very shortly after, on the night that he was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And he took wine, he shared it with them. And he said, this is my blood, which is given us a new covenant. And do you remember what else he said? He said, I won't partake of this again until I do so with you in the kingdom of God. So as you partake of the Lord's Supper today, remember that this is a proclamation that there is a king who is ruling over the world and who will come to set the world to right, King Jesus. So I'm gonna pray, the musicians will come forward, partake of this with joy, putting your faith anew in Jesus, the wise king, and then we'll worship. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jamison, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.